Hello everyone, this is Charles Wiz. And Tony Silva. And this is Two Teachers Talking, a podcast about what teachers can do and what we do in the classroom to make things better and talking about maybe some things that usually don't get talked about and giving a space for teachers to think about these things and also communicate with each other. Um, our website is twoteacherstalking.com, and if you want to get in touch with us, please give us an email at twoteacherstalking at gmail.com. And today we're talking about manipulating the classroom space, dealing with bad classrooms or tables and chairs that don't move, noisy classrooms, things along those lines. And Tony, I think you have a really good story about getting the, basically the classroom from hell this semester, if I'm right. Yeah, and it's, it's probably a, a story shared with a lot of people listening, anybody listening. But um, yeah, beginning of the year, we get new classrooms assigned to us, and uh, we traipse around from building the building to see what we've got. And yeah, one of those I got this year was really pretty bad. It was not, um, I guess, maybe the, the first image that people would get, like a big uh, lecture hall type right, classroom. Right, that's the, this was, the image I would have. Yeah, this was... Uh, actually, the dimensions of the room were not terrible. They were a little on the small side, except that uh, there were barely enough uh, uh, desks, barely enough st- uh, desks for the students, because they were um, kind of using fighting the space with uh, a lot of storage, storage of other tables that were kind of folded and stacked up on the side, and some chairs in the corner. And um, with this uh, particular class, I was using would, would have been using. Um, a good mix of um, different kind of AV material, you know, listening things and in video as well. It would help the kids with the uh, structures and conversations and things. Um, and indeed, in the corner of the room was a you know fairly good sized monitor. But uh, on the little shelf underneath it, there was this, three different DVD players and uh, excuse me, three three, three DVD players. Why would anyone decks. need three DVD players? Um, because you keep trying one until one works, I think, which looks like <laughs> it would happen because along with those three players, there were at least eight ca- sets of cables um, and none of them connected. On and, either uh, end? On either end. <laughs> <laughs> Not a good sign. Not a good sign. Oh, and, and, bad and sign. Indeed, bad sign. And indeed, the... I lost the battle of man versus tech and I was able to get even the DVD player to work on this thing. Uh, so, yeah, after class, just marched over to uh, the appropriate office and uh, started begging for another room. Yeah, I, I know that feeling. I have um, the classroom you described at the beginning of the image that most teachers have of the worst classroom, which is the lecture hall. And 30 students in a lecture hall that maybe seats 150 to 200, um, fixed seats, students sitting next to each other, um, hard to move in and move around. So I'm in the traditional classroom from hell, but yours sounds pretty bad. I think you mentioned also that the walls were kind of paper thin. The walls, as as they are called, were... Um, so-called walls. Kind of, yeah, so-called walls were just kind of... Uh, uh, wall paneling veneer. I mean, like about an eight, what quarter of an inch thick, eighth of an inch thick. Okay. Uh, that walnut shade and just kind of not really connected to tops and bottoms and very flimsy. And uh, of course, you know, you could hear anything that was happening on the other side. And what was on the other side? Uh, a, a meeting or two. Okay. A meeting or two. So, so they could um, hear you and you could hear them. I'm sure. I'm sure they could hear me because I'm not a quiet teacher. <laughs> I don't think either of us are, but that's an interesting point because one of the things that 
I feel bad about is uh, knowing that people can hear me from uh-huh. outside and that the classroom space is not a privately shared space. Not that I'm saying anything that I would be, I feel is wrong, but it's nice to be able to be who I am in the classroom and kind of feel that the students and myself have a private space, but you're talking sure. about um, acoustic, the, the acoustic space just being non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was an awful room. And it, uh, actually the, uh, you mentioned the acoustics. It reminds me of, um, another situation I had a few years ago, um, which really, uh, kind of, kind of interesting. It was, a uh, it was a national university and, uh, right outside our classroom, the classrooms are pretty dismal as, as they were, which, but you know, you can live with that as we'll, we'll talk about things that we can do to make that better. About living with what we don't like, right? <laughs> but. In this case, um, they were remodeling the building, the building in which the classrooms were being held simultaneously. And um, with the jackhammers right outside the door, um, there were two classes that I just, halfway through the class, I just had to let the kids go. I said, there is there is no way that we can conduct a class in, this, in the, these conditions. And uh, again, march down to... The Kyomokaku plants, like, you know, but you know, of course, there's nothing that can be done. There's got the construction scheduled, so do your best. That's an interesting point, I think, um, for people who I don't know outside of Japan, but I know that in Japan, those kind of concerns or issues would never occur to the people in the office when they're assigning classrooms. They know that they're scheduled construction, for example. And even if the construction were right outside your door, they would not try to find a classroom from another faculty. Right. right. They would just they, they, say, they would sorry, you about, have to deal with You have with access this. to the door. Can exactly. you get in and out of the classroom? Okay, then that's job done. Right. Mission accomplished. And I think it's a really good point is that there's just some times where you do have to bail for the day. And mm-hmm. not just let's, I think we're going to talk about this in another podcast, but Sometimes that in a situation like that where obviously no teaching is going to occur, all you can yeah. do is walk your students outside, yeah. hope it's a nice day, and sit them down on the grass somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Right? Actually, I think it would make sense if, uh, as a teacher if I kept like a really large, you know, vinyl ground cloth somewhere just in case for those bad days mm. or the really beautiful days. But space, that sounds pretty bad, having yeah. to deal with jackhammers. And, you know, again, older building, too. I don't know how much of that dust that was flying around was asbestos-laden either. Yeah, concern for your students' uh, health. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it, was, it was pretty nasty. Right, so that's what happens. So we're talking about dealing with space. I don't think at those kind of extremes. I think we're looking more at what happens when you have a badly designed classroom. For example, we have uh, I teach in a classroom, and I get assigned this classroom every year. I think the reason I get assigned this classroom is it has a electronic whiteboard, and people know that I like to use tech, even though I don't find the electronic whiteboard that useful. But they have the worst designed student seats ever in history. And it's, I'm trying to describe these, but it's like you take the regular student seat that has the folding table, and that table is usually half size, so it's very easy mm-hmm. to get in. Here, the table part is full size, mm-hmm. so that a student lifts this entire table, sits down, puts the table back down across, folds it down, and if they put their their materials on top, they can't get out of the seat without clearing off the entire table. Mm-hmm. 
right? And for someone like me who has students changing and moving into different pairs or groups every 10 to 12, 15 minutes, this is just insane. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to a, a professor who explained it was great, who said, okay, yes, this was a bonehead decision. <laughs> and the funny thing was, I said, it's obvious that anyone who is taught would never order these chairs. And he went, oh, no, 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 no. It was, or those chairs were ordered by a professor, which I found pretty shocking that mm. anyone who's been in a classroom, I think, would never order these tables. So, um, you know, I actually, you know, did what you did. I bailed on the classroom. Mm. I came into school early one day, looked around, looked and checked the schedule, found an available classroom and moved my students out of the classroom, even though that wasn't necessarily the worst classroom in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got to be realistic about what you can accomplish in a given time period, right? And if it's obvious nothing's going to happen, well, yeah, there's really not any point in, you know, going on. I mean, yeah, sometimes bailing is the, is the best option. Right. I mean, you can't bail on the semester, but right. my, that classroom isn't a reason to bail on the class that day. I think right. extreme noise, distractions, um, a failed air conditioner, for example, in the middle of summer where your students are sweating, that definitely doesn't work. Yeah. But the classroom space, it's an interesting problem. And I think we were talking, I was telling you a little bit about my this idea that came to me about the space and how space changes between elementary school to university students. And I'll see if I can make this connection here. But I told you that I went to see, went to my daughter's classroom, and she's a fourth grade student in an international mm -hmm. school. And on the walls, or the teacher has posters and students' work and announcements and schedules, and there are things in the corners and everywhere. The board is filled up, and there's this incredible amount of input. And then I happened to go visit a junior high school classroom, and I noticed that the amount of materials on the walls was far you know, less, right? There wasn't that much. Mm -hmm. And then the high school, I started thinking back to my high school classes and then college classes, and I realized that the students' space, the area of learning, moves from, you know, 360 degree, an entire three-dimensional unit, until finally, by the time we get them in college, it's either the space on their desk or the screen in front of them, right? Where mm -hmm. we have some mm -hmm. kind of the video. Of the room. Right. And that part of what we're talking about is not just, you know, how do we deal with bad tables or bad sound, is a whole approach to how can we even use that classroom more efficiently. You know, I have mm -hmm. this dream that the perfect classroom would be nothing but four sides of whiteboard. Mm -hmm. Right? And that I could just write on the walls at will. And that would be very helpful. But that's, I guess, my best wish, my dream of what an ideal space would be. Yeah, well, not not only would you be able to write on the walls, but the so students would. The students, would. Right? Exactly. Imagine just all the things that could be going on. They could be doing their work and sharing. Yeah. And uh, so I'm thinking just about the problem is I can't go into a classroom and post lots of posters on and take yeah, them off. Yeah, it's impossible for all of us. And I think that would be a really kind of a dream situation, a place where right. you did have that kind of control over... Your, your classrooms. Right. And so since we don't have that control yeah, so over our classrooms, what do we do? What do we do? So, okay. So you get stuck into um, a lecture hall. What are some of the things you do to deal with that terrible environment? And you're like me. I, I think many teachers, a lot of pair work, a lot of group work, moving students yeah, around yeah. constantly. We are definitely not a chalk and talk kind of uh, instructor style 
teacher. Yeah, not, yeah, that, you know, you know, unless a, a class <laughs> forces it into that role. But uh, uh, that, well, that never it, happens to me. I don't know about <laughs> you. <laughs> I hate that when that happens, by the way. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I always find myself hitting myself in the head afterwards saying, how did I fall prey to that? But Yeah, I'm fighting an epic battle at the moment. But that's uh, a topic the, for another day. An epic battle. Yeah. Okay. But... um. Well, I think regardless of the classroom, whether it's you know a big lecture hall or anything else, the first thing I you want to do is you maybe get any barriers that you've got out of the way if you can. Mm. Like for, for example, a podium. You know, don't begin your class from the <laughs> behind a podium, talking down to your students. Right, get that out of the way. Um, one of the things that I know that you and I have talked about before is getting yourself down to the students' level when you're talking to them. So, right, squatting down and making yeah, sure so that your eye level is below theirs. Get the theirs. podium out of there, grab a, a student desk, and flop it around, and uh, sit down at their level. You know, assuming the class is small enough, because other you know, if you got a really big class, the kids in the back aren't going to be able to see you. But um, and anything else that might be in the way, you know, that's between, you know, very basically something between you and the student, get rid of that. Yeah, so um, this is the advantage, by the way, of an <clears throat> iPad, is it gets rid of the screen between you and your student if mm-hmm. you're using a computer. I like yeah, that. Yeah, you're, you're on the same side. Right, exactly. Okay, so for those people maybe who are listening, um, especially if you're a newer teacher, what, Tony, explain why we want to get down you know, below the students, right? Why we're squatting, why we tend to maybe put a chair out and sit down rather than stand up. Well, I make a real big point at the beginning of the year of talking about some of those reasons. And those reasons usually are, I, I frame it in a cultural context, um, whereas in Japan, you know, the, the cliche, of course, it's a hierarchical society, but the cliche is you know, very firmly routed, uh, rooted in reality. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, a changing of the roles where you're not the, the font of knowledge and information. You are a co-learner with the student. You're coming down to their level. Um, and it, it emphasizes it's, it's a difference that's emphasized in the difference in the languages, where Japanese language also is very hierarchical and very mm. class, uh, class and status conscious, whereas English is not. I mean, we tend to use the same. We have differences in register, but the language itself, the the, the verbs and the nouns and so forth, don't change uh, depending when, on the context roles, and who right? you're speaking. It's much to. less contextual. So. I, I frame it that way. One of the things that I also do in this case, for example, I mentioned not being visible to the back of the room. I sit on the desk. Mm, I do that too. Yes, and you know, and often students who don't have experience with foreign teachers, you'll almost hear them gasp because this is not a polite thing to do in Japan. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I, and I and I and I as I end my little talk, I says, "You notice that I'm sitting on the desk," and I says, "I know that this is." not appropriate behavior here in Japan, but this is why I'm doing it. Uh, mm. Talk about, you know, our our North American uh, tendency to become as casual as possible, as quickly as possible. Like, for example, the use of first names, um, the the handshake rather than the bowing, all kinds of small things in the introductions, which we usually be in our classes with, um, that are different. So, yeah, not talking down to them, getting down to their level, a very human thing where you're not the the god, right? You, mm. you, you, and I think it's a good point because when we talk about manipulating the space, and uh, and I think Tony, as I've said before, that word's becoming one of my favorite words, manipulating, um, because I believe it's not a negative term, and it's necessary for me to to be able to design that classroom, right? in a good way. But mm-hmm. one of the things is that what can you do with your body? For example, sitting on the table as a way of maybe changing the student's focus and 
about the way they're sitting and the fact that most of the time, though, students are behind a barrier, right? You're mm-hmm. talking about that, okay, I try to move the podium or the lecterns, whatever it is. As my, I try not to stand on a podium, it's right, and I move the lecterns. I try not to sit behind a desk. Um, I like the iPad because there's no longer a screen between me and the students, but they're almost always behind a barrier. Mm-hmm. And anything I can do that will shock them or wake them up and kind of bring their focus really far forward is very helpful. So that's why the sitting on the desk, which I do, is a tool to kind of surprise them. But I also explain to them that that classroom space is not a Japanese classroom space. Mm-hmm. I am recreating an American university space so that they will understand what people in an American university are experiencing and that sure. they have to check their perceptions at the door. But, okay, so you're squatting down, you're removing any kind of barriers in the lecture room, right? When you're walking around the lecture hall, right, with the fixed tables and the fixed chairs, we're doing these kinds of things, a lot of walking around. What else um, are you doing? Well, one of the things we talked about, the, the, the lecture hall and that, that nightmare classroom that I had, in fact, um, the, the room that I was given afterwards pretty much mirrors the one you were talking about. It seats... 105 students and I have 36 and uh, what I did was uh, get all the students into one of the front quadrants of the classroom where we did the, the basic introduction and the the backdrop for what we we're going to do that day and then had them leave all their things there and use the other three-fourths of the classroom uh, to you know put them into smaller groups where they were on task so uh, in the situation now of the class, we gather together in the corner to plan what we're going to do, to talk about what we're going to do. Then they go off into uh, groups, um, randomly assigned, changing all the time, but uh, for the day anyway, and uh, into groups in the other part of the classroom uh, to you know, do the other activities that they're going to do. So um, that extra space uh, turned into an advantage. Mm, that's an interesting thing. Because um, the idea of putting students into maybe one small section at the front of the classroom, having them leave their bags and only have the materials that they need for that day, right? You've now opened up an entire space and you can assign students to work together throughout the room. Right. Yeah. And you, you, you are then moving around through the classroom rather than being back up there at the front of the room. And it's a, it's a completely different environment. Right. And one of the things I've started doing in this classroom is to use standing activities. So students mm-hmm. are standing up so that they can face each other and they're kind of spread out through the aisles and around the walls and in the back of the class. But at least I have them facing each other. And to deal with that, I just have to shorten the activity. So instead of having, let's say, a 20-minute activity, I turn it into a 10-minute pair work activity. Students are standing, they have a, a textbook to write on and they have their paper or whatever it is that they're using. And the the shorter the shorter activity also helps with the what I call the, the guppy effect. Hmm. When I was growing up I had guppies and uh, you, you know, train them to I tap on the corner of the aquarium whenever I was going to feed them and they all come to the corner. Well you know what happens when you have students with the standing activities? <laughs> they yes. just gravitate to the farthest point of the room away from the teacher. That's right. right? We talked, I think, about that on the first yeah. day, that if you do any kind of activity that you I, – I, I've, as I've mentioned before, I've moved myself to different <laughs> you, places. You've got to stay mobile. You've got to stay but, mobile. Right. And, I, and no matter what, it's kind of like this incredible dance of like predator and prey that mm-hmm, they are mm-hmm. – 
figuring out the furthest point away from me. But so standing activities, I think, are one way to deal with the bad space. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you're doing in those kind of classrooms? Keeping well, making sure that you're you know not I said it made the groups random, but you also want to have a certain awareness of patterns and combinations of people. So you know, for example, if you're working with a uh, topic that has anything to do with gender, you probably want to have have an eye toward having mixed gender groups, if at all possible. If you're not mm. a, at a at a women's un, women's university, or depending on the makeup of the class. Um, also, a little bit of personalities. You you know you don't want to have a group that's got all the quiet kids in it, mm. um, or maybe you, I mean, you might. Maybe you do. Maybe that I, one actually, way to deal I think with that. you want to mix that up. Yeah. Even that in itself is sometimes you do want to have the quiet yeah. kids and yeah. the more extroverted kids together, give them opportunities to work with themselves. It's funny, though, because with the shy students, I do this thing at the very beginning of the semester where I ask, I say, okay, shy people, raise your hand. And, of course, all the people in the classroom raise their hand. And then I turn to them and say, I'm sorry, you're not shy. Shy people can't even raise their hands. <laughs> and it gets a good laugh from the students, and they kind of realize that. But right, it's, again, when we talk about manipulating the space, and I think what we want to say is that we're not just talking about physical space of the room. We're talking about the space between students and the space between ourselves and the students. So right. they're changing the group mode. Introverts with introverts, introverts with extroverts, high level with low level, mixing it all up is an important thing. Um, I tend to also, one thing I do is um, I like to teach from the back of the classroom mm-hmm. and students figure out that it doesn't matter whether they sit in the front or their back or the mm-hmm. back of the classroom. Mm-hmm. So they end up moving to the middle area mm. <laughs> when they sit. <laughs> But let's move away a little bit from the um, lecture hall, because I think most people aren't in lecture halls. Mm-hmm. What can people do to improve any classroom situation? And we both agree, I think, that get there early and change the desks, move yeah. them around. Or what I have done is I tell the students, this is the kind of shape of the room we want. When you come to class, please start putting the desks into this shape. Mm-hmm. Right? And you can create any shape you want. Yeah. Yep, yep. How about yourself? I think you do things along those lines, right? Uh, I've done I've done things like that. Um, I haven't done it this year just because the, the teaching situation hasn't lent itself to that. But uh, no, absolutely. Because at the beginning, if you've got a pattern and that's what you want the kids to do, uh, it's, it's a wonderful time saver. Uh, and not only is it a time saver, but you actually have uh, the kids each week involved in contributing to that environment and just something as small as having them move the things around um, makes them feel a little bit more connected with what's happening what's going on right the negative side is that you lose time at the end of class when you have to put it all together again right right. but um, something i've done and it's interesting as i say put the classroom together the way you want Mm -hmm. and it's interesting to see how they create the classroom usually ovals win right the round table discussion format tends to win most of the time. But I think it's a fair thing to do is to say, hey, we have this space here. It's your space. And we say that all the time, right? Yeah, say, hey, yeah. this is a shared space, but then I control how the seats are or how the seating is. And to say to the students, by the time we come to class, put the classroom into shape. And if you're two or three people and you want to try a new way to order the seats and the tables, please try that and we'll deal with it and see how it goes. So I think that's one another way of dealing with space is giving students 
the challenge of manipulating the space and you know moving tables and chairs around. Yep. Right. But let's say you're having other problems. I mean. I'm just thinking that one of the only things I can do when I've got a really bad, bad space is just to constantly move the students around all the time, putting them into pairs and groups and just having them change a lot so that any bad situation doesn't seem to last too long for any go. given exactly. activity. Exactly. Yeah. So that means, of course, you're designing the, the less lesson plan to have a lot of shorter, smaller activities mm-hmm. or a lot of repetition, a lot of reiteration, I think. And there's no negatives or downside to having two or three reiterations of an activity with small little tweaks to either focus on right accuracy or fluency, for example. And mm-hmm. we'll be talking about what we do, I think, a little bit later. Any other things you do that um, might help a bad situation? A physical um, situation. No, the only other thing I'd echo is that, yeah, I, I will sometimes, in, in those kind of situations where, you know, things are getting stale or things are, you, know, you can just see people getting antsy, using the standing activities. And if the classroom doesn't lend itself that easily to, like, moving around, you can form lines, like, across the front of the room or the back of the room and uh, rotate the students in pairs. Like, you know, every 30 seconds, every 45 seconds with a timer, and bam, switch partners, bam, switch partners. Um, they And when they actually have done it a number of times enough to be comfortable with it. They're not thinking about what they're doing. It actually turns into quite a little party. Right. I know that in like lecture halls, for example, I'll create activities, little contest games where students have to run up to the front of the classroom, write the correct answer to a question, and then their team's awarded a bonus question. And then the space becomes very useful because they have to run up. There's like a little bit of athletic, you know, speed contest involved, um, you know, we're moving the chalk around and that also helps and makes the classroom a little bit better, I think. Yeah. I had a, when you had the, when you mentioned the kid running to the front of the room, a little don't tell warning. me you had somebody fall oh, down and oh, well, it's, it's in that area, right? A little okay. warning flag went up yeah. because one of the things and it, it bears directly on what we do with space. It was, um, and it was a long time ago and I haven't done it since. It was a class involving directions, you know, go straight, turn left, go turn right, which they never remember. But anyway, um, what we did was we had two teams, and everyone was out of their seats and into opposite corners of the room. And uh, one of the representatives from each group had a blindfold, and uh, there were uh, tokens. The blind walk, yeah. There were tokens somewhere in the, in the room, like on a desk or on the seat or on the floor, and uh, the, their team had to give them directions to get to whatever the token, you know, whatever was five yen coin or something. And uh, I guess the, the might have been on the seat of a chair, or might have been on the floor. And one of the students is like, "Oh yeah, there it is, get it." And she, of course, she has a blindfold on. She goes down to pick something off the floor and uh, puts her face on one of those desks that you were talking about. Ouch! Ooh. Yeah. That, that didn't foresee that, but uh, it was it was working real well until then. Yeah, fortunately, I haven't had that happen too much, and nobody's uh, fallen down or tripped. Yeah. Um, and I tend to tell the students don't run too quickly. It's more of a little fast walk jog. Mm. But <clears throat> again, that's just a way to use that space. Is right. it's a large space, so maybe you can turn it into um, an area where there's a little bit more physical activity going on. Yeah, yeah, right. But let's talk about what happens when you have a teacher who's like you or me likes to use tech and you get put into a complete non-tech classroom where all you have is a blackboard or whiteboard and something to write 
What do you do? Well, as we'll talk about, I think at some point about our tech toys and things. I mean, God, the you know the iPad has just been a, a real gift for teachers. Um, it just you know, we talked about barriers before, and it's one of the as you said, it's one of the wonderful things for just breaking down all kinds of barriers. Um, and um, a lot of school, you know, a lot of people outside of Japan will have a hard time accepting this, but there's still a lot of classrooms that don't have um, Wi-Fi or any internet access at all. Right. Um, and um, one of the things that uh, that I that I had to do is I bought myself an extra little dongle. It's a little portable Wi-Fi device that's with me all the time. And when I'm at a school that doesn't, or a, cl- or a classroom that doesn't have uh, Wi-Fi access, internet access, and then that click that little guy on, and and then we're set. So, I, yeah. But that uh, that iPad, you know, having you know the Wi-Fi access and the iPad is just uh, one of the all-time great teaching tools. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's a it's an, a good idea <clears throat> if you are a tech-oriented person, you should definitely have one of these mobile hotspot. I think is what they're called, right? Mm-hmm, right. You know, just in case you don't have an internet connection. Yeah. And uh, I like using the iPad to diagram things with students if I can. But the other thing I found that in these terrible classrooms um, is walking around and students are working at desks that it's hard for them, let's say, to move around. Um, and I don't have uh, an internet connection or I don't have a whiteboard. Um, you know, the great thing is just grab a piece of chalk and write on the table when you want to diagram something. Yeah, you mentioned that before. That's right. a great idea. Or I'll write down the uh, the website that a student should go to. And then after I write it down, they'll look at me. And then you, with your hand, you wipe it off. And they say, but, but I said, well, you know, next time be a little quicker. And then you write hmm. it back down on the desk and they write it down in their notebook. And then again, it's great. You just wipe it off. But I think if you are a tech-oriented person and you're put into a situation where there's not a lot of tech, then you deal with it. You adapt to it. You go back and start using paper, pen, whiteboards, chalkboards. But I do know one professor I used to work with who absolutely refused to teach in a classroom that did not have an internet connection and projector and computers and an electronic whiteboard. And I think that kind of inflexibility is just not really acceptable. Mm, yeah, not very realistic either. Right. You have to be prepared to deal with any environment possible. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think we've talked a little bit about covering our bases in terms of dealing with space. Mm-hmm. Again, so, a lot yeah, of again, times... r- remove the barriers, uh, get down to the student's level. Uh, right. One one uh, practical thing we haven't mentioned about mentioned because it you know it's kind of kind of forced for the trees thing is that you know here we are both of us complaining about classrooms that we've been assigned. Well, um, it's probably worth our while to do a little homework and uh, get the right room from the beginning um, instead of, like, for example, asking, "Well, I need A, B, and C," and they give you A, B, and C, but in a, in a completely unusable environment. Um, Scout around a bit, find a classroom that you like or that you want, and see if it's available. Mm. Uh, find out who it is that assigns the room and see if you can get the best room possible right from the beginning. Because as often as not, they're, you know, the rooms are kind of assigned at random. Right. The way my university works is that there are certain rooms assigned for certain kinds of classes or departments. Mm-hmm. And you find out. Go ahead, ask somebody, what are the classrooms that are available? And... When you're getting your classes assigned for the following year, 
Um, some universities actually ask you, do you have classroom requests? What kind of classroom? But instead, specifically ask for a given classroom. Sure. And write down the rationale why you want it. So yep. one way to avoid the problem is do your homework. Go to the office, ask them what are the available classrooms or what classrooms are assigned. And they're usually very open to that because most teachers don't care. Yeah, yeah. Right? Sure. I think most teachers don't care. So get the best room from the beginning, do your homework, scout out the classrooms. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, something something that, uh, this is a tip from another teacher. I've never done this myself, but he swears by it. Um, you know, like like a lot of teachers, has a problem with the students gravitating toward the back of the room and the big empty space in the front of the room. Um, what he did or does uh, is get to class early, and uh, he's got a couple, a handful of signs, small paper signs, just written in Japanese, written, "Please sit in front of this row," mm. or "Don't sit back." And so he says, and he claims that it works like a charm. I, mm. Yeah, I, I, make, get... I make them. I make them move after I get there. <laughs> yeah, I just say, "Come on, forward." Why are you guys making me work yeah. so much? Yeah, and move them forward. Okay, so one thing is, so if you're in a classroom that's pretty big and you don't want the students to sit in the back row, put some signs up when you get to the classroom if you get there early, or at least ask the students to move. Um, order the best classroom you can from the beginning. Do your homework. Scout around. Um, move the class if you can. If you have desks and tables that will move. Manipulate that environment, create a space that you like, change the shape, have the students move around. Um, bring your own Wi-Fi. Bring your own Wi-Fi if you're a tech-oriented person and you absolutely need an internet connection. Um, if it's a really bad space, move your students around as much as possible. If it's a lecture hall, try to do a lot of standing activities. Okay. And I think uh, the other one is bail out of the room. Mm. If the weather for, yeah. uh, permits. Don't be afraid to bail. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I know that I take my students outside on beautiful days, and for most of them, it's the first time they've ever had a class outside. Well, I don't know if I've ever had a class small enough to take outside. Yeah. Out of these 45 kids, I don't know that. I've, I've done it with 25 small. students, 30 mm -hmm. students. We have some big grass areas. Mm. And it's great because I get to spread them out and put them into groups. And so if you have that opportunity, go ahead. Sometimes if your class is small enough, Try to find an outdoor sitting area or an alternative space. Um, sometimes even I've used the school cafeterias because they're not full or crowded, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes a, that space is better than the classroom I've been assigned. Yeah, and some universities do have some very nice space that would lend themselves to that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, don't overlook those. Okay, so we've got some takeaways for the audience, things that are direct and practical and what I what I might consider to be one of the most difficult um, topics. This is this, yeah. This is a difficult topic. It's you know, difficult you, to talk about. It's difficult to work. Right, and I'd really like to hear what other people are doing. I need a lot of help on this one mm. because sometimes I just don't know what to do with the space and that up time when the space and the students don't match up in a positive way. Yeah. Right. Okay. I think we've uh, got some good tips there. Again, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at twoteacherstalking at gmail.com. Our website is twoteacherstalking.com. Always looking forward to hearing from you. And I guess we have a few days off, Tony, and then it's back to classes and That's no great. holidays for about 10 more weeks. Yeah, yeah. It's a long stretch. Okay. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Yep. Okay, well, have yourself a nice few days off and uh, saying this is Charles Wiz and Tony Silva, two teachers talking, and we thank you for listening and look forward to talking to you again. 
Tony, be well. Okay, you too. See you.